Part 3 Happiness in a Troubled World Chapter 10 Coping with the Troubled World A couple of years had passed since our last series of discussions in Dharamsala. Taking place not long after 9-11, those conversations had focused on themes related to aggression, violence, and fear, the darker varieties of human conduct. Since that time, we had seen the invasion of Afghanistan, with the toppling of the repressive Taliban regime, and the invasion of Iraq, with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. And it seemed there was always some kind of violence breaking out, in one region of the world or another, on a small scale or large, for a short duration, or on a protracted ongoing basis. There seemed no end in sight for the use of violence to resolve conflict. The world did not seem much closer to realizing the Dalai Lama's vision of a world where we felt connected with others, at ease no matter whom we were with, where our fundamental goodness and gentleness reigned, a world largely without violence or fear, except perhaps a few inevitable skirmishes between people here and there. Yet he remained hopeful. The century was still young. There was still time for such changes to occur. But with so many problems in today's world, I wondered, how did he maintain hope? What sustained his optimism? And against this backdrop of challenging societal problems and the multitude of stresses of everyday life, each of us has our own personal troubles as well. So we were faced with a fundamental question. How can we find happiness in such a troubled world? The Dalai Lama was in the United States on another speaking tour, this time in Tucson. During the intervening period since our last full series of discussions in India, we had continued to meet intermittently, but we had shifted to other topics for a while, speaking about issues related to economics, wealth, lifestyle, greed, consumerism, the rich, and the poor. I had accompanied him on some additional speaking tours as well, but with his schedule booked solid during his foreign tours, it was generally not the appropriate time to request meetings for in-depth discussions of complex topics. Tucson was different, however. It was here, in my own home state of Arizona, where we had conducted our first conversations about human happiness so many years before, discussions that were eventually chronicled in The Art of Happiness. This was his first return visit to Arizona. So, after more than a decade, here we were again, still exploring the theme of human happiness. The Sonoran Desert setting, amid the rocky hills, towering saguaro cactus, and the subtle fragrance of the desert shrubs, evoked a feeling of nostalgia. Somehow, it felt right that we continue our discussions here, a place that was a reminder of the cycles of life ever-changing cycles that revolved around an unchanging core, the perennial question of how to find happiness. The Dalai Lama had a full day ahead of him. Aside from a brief lunch in private in his hotel suite, virtually every minute of his time had been booked solid. That week he was giving a series of teachings on one of his favorite Buddhist texts, the Bodhi Karyavatara, written by Shantideva. Long teaching sessions scheduled every morning and afternoon left little time for other activities. Usually, 
whatever few spare minutes he had in between public or private events would be filled with brief private audiences. In this case, however, because of my local ties, the organizers of the Dalai Lama's visit to Tucson had graciously helped facilitate some longer blocks of time for us to meet, after his breakfast in the mornings or following his teachings in the late afternoons. I arrived at his hotel suite quite early in the morning for our first meeting. Not exactly a morning person, I had barely finished my first cup of coffee and was still struggling to see in color. As I entered the living room of the suite, the Dalai Lama emerged from the adjoining bedroom with a quick step and a warm smile, greeting me alertly and in great spirits. As per his usual travel routine, he had been up since 4 a.m., had spent more than three hours in meditation and prayer, and had finished his simple breakfast of traditional Tibetan tsampa. This was his best time of day. We opened with a little preliminary general conversation as he kicked off a pair of worn rubber flip-flops and settled into a cross-legged position, barefoot, in an oversized upholstered chair. Although by Arizona standards the early autumn temperature was a welcome reprieve from the brutal summer, the Dalai Lama, who generally doesn't like hot weather, commented on the desert heat as I sat down on the sofa opposite him, pulling out my notebooks. As I set up my tape recorder on the coffee table in front of us, we spoke for a few moments about his being back in Tucson after so many years. But with so many questions that I wanted to cover, very shortly we resumed our long-standing conversations, picking up where we left off in Dharamsala. Quickly penetrating to the very heart of the matter at hand, the question of how to find happiness in our troubled world, I began. You know, Your Holiness, when you think of all these problems in the world, problems which undermine human happiness, violence, terrorism, prejudice, poverty, and the gap between rich and poor, the environment, and so on, and think about how vast these all are, sometimes it all seems so impossible. I mean, with so much suffering in the world, the possibility of people finding genuine happiness seems to be so remote sometimes. Howard, now one thing. We've been talking about human happiness on the level of a society, and on this level, the external conditions can have some impact on the happiness of those living in that society. So we need to work on overcoming the many problems in today's world. We need to make an effort to change things in whatever way we can, even small ways, so that social conditions are created that can promote greater happiness for all of the members of that society. That's important. That's our responsibility. But when we talk about promoting human happiness, we need to address this on two levels, internal and external. So, we need to work toward solving the external problems, but at the same time, we need to find a way to cope internally, on an individual level, so we can maintain personal happiness in the face of the world's problems. So, at this point then, I'd like to shift to the individual level and explore ways to find happiness despite the world's problems, I said. Very good, he replied. But you know, I sighed, with so many problems in today's world, so many stresses and difficulties in daily life, sometimes it seems that the best way to deal with it all 
would be to just ignore everything going on around us or become a hermit or something. But that can't be the solution. Yes, the world does have many problems, the Dalai Lama agreed. But one does not need to withdraw from the world to find happiness. He stopped for a moment to reach for a mug of tea on a side table, then resumed. You know, this question actually reminds me a little bit of one time in Germany when the interviewer asked me if I thought that stress was a congenital characteristic of the modern world, of modern society. What did you tell him? I told him no. In fact, if that were true, then we'd all have to run to a place without TV, without communications, without any modern conveniences, and without such good food, the Dalai Lama replied. To me, he continued, wherever such a place might be, I don't think that would necessarily be a pleasant, stress-free place to live. So, states like stress and anxiety are internal states, whereas the conditions of our society are external. They don't directly create our stress. Stress and these negative mental states have to do with our own response to those conditions and show a certain lack of ability to cope with our environment. So, if you reflect you'll see that much of our suffering in life is caused not by external causes, but by internal events, such as the arising of disturbing emotions. And the best antidote to this inner disruption is enhancing our ability to handle these emotions and learning how to cope with our environment, the negative situations, and so on. Just to clarify, I asked, when you refer to handling these emotions, are you referring to learning how to regulate our emotions, or more specifically, working on overcoming negative emotions such as anger, hatred, greed, jealousy, discouragement, and so on? In other words, are you referring to the process of training the mind? Yes, he affirmed. In the past, you and I have spoken about this training of the mind, or what I sometimes call inner discipline as a method of cultivating greater happiness. So I think, hoping he wouldn't dismiss this topic because we had already spoken about it in the past, I quickly cut in. Yes, we have spoken about this, but I think this is a great place to start today. Because in one series of meetings in Dharamsala a while back, we were discussing acts of evil and violence, and we had traced the cause of this to its roots in the negative, destructive emotions. Well, in those discussions, we spent some time on the specific negative emotion of fear, but we didn't get to a deeper discussion of how to deal with the others or the negative emotions in general. I wanted to return to that topic, so today it would be great to have a little general review of overcoming the negative emotions. It never hurts to do a little review of important topics, I argued. And besides, in the past... We discussed this only in the context of personal development, but now we are discussing these issues in a different context, within a wider framework or awareness of societal factors, too. With a subtle smile on his face, a smile confined mostly to his eyes, I think maybe because he was pleased at my enthusiasm to stick with this topic, he agreed to my request, saying, Okay, to review then, this training of the mind involves cultivating positive states of mind and overcoming the negative states of mind, the destructive emotions, or what are known as the afflictive emotions. 
As we have discussed in the past, according to Buddhist theory, the positive mental states are those which lead to greater happiness. The negative or destructive emotions cause disturbances within our mind, destroying our mental happiness. These afflictive emotions lead to greater suffering. From the Buddhist point of view, we consider these positive mental qualities to be antidotes to the destructive or afflictive mental states. As you strengthen the positive emotion, there will be a corresponding reduction in the influence and force of the negative emotion. So, within Buddhist practice, there are certain positive mental factors that act as specific antidotes to their corresponding negative or afflictive emotions. For example, patience or tolerance acts as an antidote to anger. Compassion or loving-kindness as an antidote to hatred. And factors such as contentment or modest desires act as antidotes to covetousness and greed, and so on. Oh, one other thing, he added after a pause. Here we are talking about this inner discipline. But as I usually mention, this inner discipline needs to be linked with ethical discipline, acting in an ethical way. As you reduce destructive emotions, you need to also work on overcoming the destructive behaviors that go with them, which can also lead to misery and suffering. So, as you develop these positive mental qualities, the inner changes need to be translated into your behavior, into how you interact with others. That is important. Perhaps one day, the world will widely adopt the principles of nonviolence when the stupidity of prejudice and cruelty of racism will largely be a thing of the past, when poverty and hunger have been eradicated, basic human rights are afforded to all, and social conditions promote human happiness and flourishing. Someday, perhaps, when that day will be is uncertain. But one thing that is certain is that societal change takes time. So we are left with the question of how best to cope with the problems of our world and still remain happy, a question that the Dalai Lama began to address that morning. So we returned once again to the level of the individual, exploring the inner approach to happiness as we had done here in Tucson so many years before. But now we addressed these questions in a wider societal context. And now... Scientific research had much to say about the validity of that approach to happiness, evidence the Dalai Lama's was lacking at the time of our first discussions. As I listened to him begin to outline his general approach to coping with life's adversity and remaining happy, I was astonished by the parallels with the very latest scientific discoveries. In the intervening years since the publication of The Art of Happiness, I had closely followed the new developments in the scientific study of happiness and positive emotions, and I now began to see how some of the key scientific findings served to shed new light on the Dalai Lama's approach, which was, of course, based on ancient Buddhist principles and practices. In discussing how positive emotions act as antidotes to our negative emotions, the Dalai Lama was reviewing some of the fundamental principles of the Buddhist approach to happiness. This approach is based on the idea that once our basic survival needs are met, happiness is determined more by the state of our mind than by our external circumstances, conditions, or events. Further, 
from the Buddhist point of view, we can deliberately cultivate happiness by training our minds, by reshaping our outlook and attitudes. From this perspective, we can cultivate happiness much like developing any other skill, through training and practice. The practice of training the mind begins with familiarizing ourselves with all the different kinds of mental states or emotions that we might experience in our daily life, then classifying them as positive or negative according to whether they ultimately lead to greater happiness or suffering. Thus, emotions such as compassion, kindness, tolerance, forgiveness, hope, and so on are recognized as positive emotions. These emotions are not only linked with greater happiness from the Buddhist perspective, but also there have been hundreds of scientific studies in recent years showing that positive emotions have beneficial effects on one's physical health, mental health, relationships, and overall success in life, including career success and financial prosperity. Of course, there are also many emotions and mental states that can lead to greater suffering, hostility, hatred, extreme anxiety, jealousy, greed, dishonesty, prejudice, etc. These are called negative emotions, although in our discussions we have at times used various other names interchangeably, such as destructive emotions, disturbing emotions, or kleshas in Sanskrit, which is sometimes translated as afflictive emotions or delusions. While the terms positive emotions and negative emotions are commonly used, these categories are not limited to what we would conventionally define as true emotions. For example, honesty, tolerance, or humility are included among the positive emotions, while dishonesty or lack of self-discipline may be seen as negative emotions. But whatever terminology one chooses to use, the key Buddhist principle here is that the negative emotion and its antidote are fundamentally incompatible, and one cannot experience both at the very same instant. The positive emotion acts to dispel the negative emotion, just as switching on a light will dispel darkness. So, as one gradually cultivates the positive emotion, increasing its force, there will be a corresponding reduction of the negative emotion, just like pouring cold water into hot water. As you pour in more cold water, there is a corresponding reduction in the water's temperature. In the past decade, new scientific evidence has emerged to prove the validity of this Buddhist principle in some surprising ways. For example, in a seminal experiment conducted by Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, one of the world's leading researchers on positive emotions, along with colleagues at the University of Michigan, Anxiety and stress were induced in a group of subjects by telling them that they had only minutes to prepare a speech that was going to be viewed by their peers and evaluated. As one might expect, levels of fear and anxiety instantly shot up, along with the physical stress response, including increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, peripheral vasoconstriction, muscle tension, and so on. After eliciting this stress response, the subjects were told that the speech was cancelled and they would not need to do this. Woo! Experimenters then broke the subjects into four groups, inducing a different emotion in each by having them watch film clips known to evoke amusement, a high arousal positive emotion, 
contentment or serenity, a low arousal positive emotion, sadness, a negative emotion, as well as a neutral control group, evoking no change in emotion. The investigators found that subjects who were feeling the positive emotions recovered much faster from the effects of the anxiety than the control group. Investigators discovered, for example, that the heart rate and blood pressure of subjects with positive emotions returned to normal much more quickly than the control group did, while the sad group took longer to recover than the normal controls, leading Fredrickson to propose a new theory about the function of positive emotions. Calling her theory the undoing hypothesis, she proposed the idea that positive emotions serve to undo or counteract the mental and physical effects of negative emotions. In other words, the idea that positive emotions act as antidotes to the negative emotions. This has direct implications for the Dalai Lama's belief, expressed to the German interviewer he mentioned, that modern society does not automatically have to cause stress. Of course, there is no question that the general state of the world and the conditions of modern society can be highly stressful. One widely recognized fact among scientists is that from an evolutionary perspective, the human body and brain were designed for the Pleistocene era, not modern industrial and technological society. We evolved in small groups on the vast savanna, not in giant sprawling metropolises, with people piled layer upon layer on top of each other in high-rise buildings jutting hundreds of feet in the air. Our bodies and brains were not designed to sit in gridlock traffic, horns blaring all around us, having non-stop meetings all day, last-minute presentations to make, being bombarded with constant sensory stimulation from movies and entertainment, emails piling up with no time to reply, as well as TV and radio reporting round-the-clock coverage of all varieties of natural and man-made disasters. Even ten minutes of watching the news can make one's stress level soar. And studies have shown that even the background noise around us, that we tune out and don't even notice, places demands on our nervous systems that we were not built for. The result of all this is often a chronic, low-level stimulation of our stress response, pumping out stress hormones in ways that our bodies were not designed for. These stress hormones were designed to take quick, decisive action in one intense burst of effort, and then go back to normal. They were designed to deal with threats from dangerous predators and aggressors, not to worry for months about some approaching exam, financial stress, or job loss. Our stress response system was designed for a quick battle with a saber-toothed tiger, not a long, drawn-out battle in divorce court. What's good for your body in a short-term crisis can be very harmful over long periods. The long-term activation of the stress response system or the chronic overexposure to stress hormones may alter the operation and structure of brain cells that are critical for memory, as well as cause a multitude of health problems. Then, on top of this kind of chronic background stress of modern life, we must also contend with adverse situations that upset us, evoking negative emotions such as anger or anxiety, associated with sharp peaks in the stress response, the fight-or-flight reaction. Fortunately, as the Dalai Lama suggests, 
There is a way to overcome these chronic and acute stress reactions. And as Fredrickson's experiment shows, our positive emotions can act as antidotes, reversing the negative effects of the stress response. Of course, this brings us to a fundamental question, the key question. Can we learn to regulate our emotions, bring them under voluntary control? And here we are talking about a method of producing sustained increase in positive emotions, not just a brief transient experience of positive emotion from watching a film clip. As our conversation continued, the Dalai Lama went on to answer this question. Continuing our discussion of cultivating happiness by training the mind, the Dalai Lama explained another thing. In addition to the specific antidotes to the negative emotions, there is also a general antidote. As you know, within the Buddhist tradition, we consider all of the afflictive emotions to be rooted in ignorance, misconception of the true nature of reality. Therefore, the antidote to ignorance, known as the wisdom factor, or generating insight into the true nature of reality, can be seen as a general antidote that can eliminate all of the negative emotions at their root. Also, he added, regarding these primitive and negative emotions, again, from the Buddhist perspective, we say that the positive emotions have a valid foundation based in reality, while the negative emotions lack this valid foundation and are generally based on misperception or distortion of reality. For example, Compassion for another person is based on the recognition that the other person, like yourself, wants happiness and does not want pain and suffering. This is a valid perception, part of reality. On the other hand, with an emotion like hatred, you will find that it is usually based on the perception of the individual as 100% negative or bad, as if that is the person's permanent, unchanging nature. That is a distortion of reality, since if you investigate closely, everyone will have some positive quality, and they will also have the potential to change. Familiar with these concepts from having attended many of his public talks, as well as our private conversations, I nodded. Then steering the conversation back to what I considered to be more practical matters, I said, Well, for right now, leaving aside things like valid foundation or permanently rooting out all negative emotions, the main point here is developing the ability to cope with our environment, adversities, and the stresses of daily life, and to find happiness. So if positive emotions are the antidotes, then the logical question is how to cultivate them. And I guess that, basically, the main question here is how can we learn to cope with... Anticipating the rest of my question, the Dalai Lama continued... So I think, to a large extent, one's attitude and perception play a key role here. One thing is sure. How we view the world around us, how we view others, and how you interpret your circumstances and the events going on around you can definitely affect how we might respond to our environment, our world, and its problems. This is our fundamental outlook. And I think... This is directly related to our ability to cope with problems and maintain happiness. So, we need to pay attention to this level and develop an outlook and attitudes that give us strength and can help us cope. Well, Your Holiness, 
I guess that I keep asking the same sort of thing over and over again. I laughed. But I'm wondering if you can suggest some more specific or concrete methods to help us cope. For example, how exactly does one go about developing an outlook that can give us strength? The Dalai Lama laughed. And I keep saying over and over again, the solution is, be realistic. This being realistic, I guess it seems that this is almost like a mantra to me. Realistic approach, realistic approach, when dealing with problems. For example, in our struggle for Tibet's freedom, as you know, I've always advocated a realistic approach which involves foregoing our demand for full independence and instead seeking genuine autonomy. Some of my Tibetan critics who insist on full independence are known to have stated that they find my phrase, realistic approach, to be a source of great annoyance. So anyway, I think the underlying basis for the kinds of attitudes and outlook that is most helpful for coping is realistic thinking, a realistic approach. This involves investigating and increasing awareness about the reality of the situations around us. Although we had discussed this critical issue of realistic thinking in different contexts in the past, the last time in the context of destructive emotions, this morning another thought occurred to me, an objection that I felt some people might raise in response to his position. Well, I'm not sure everyone would agree with that, I objected. I think that some people might claim that the more aware we become of all these problems in the world, the more realistic our thinking becomes, the more we investigate and look into things, the greater the likelihood of discovering all sorts of problems we were unaware of. We might discover that our society offers more problems than solutions, and so on. I'm not sure if that will make us happier, more content, or rather make us just feel more overwhelmed, more distressed and dejected. I mean, if I'm concerned about the problems of nuclear weapons, and investigate and find out the reality that there's still missile silos all around the area where I live, that's not going to make me sleep any better at night. Or if I become more aware of the reality of global warming or something, that is more likely to depress me rather than make me happier. Again, it is a matter of perspective, he said, and adopting the proper perspective, because such a discovery could also have the effect of increasing one's sense of urgency about the problem and stimulate the drive to join a group or become more politically active or take some action to try to do something about the problem. By recommending this approach of realistic thinking, of increasing our awareness and coming closer to reality, it is very important to understand what is meant by this realistic outlook. For example, I am not suggesting that one look only at the world's problems or the reality only of the negative aspects of the situation. That is only part of the reality. A true realistic approach looks at all angles and facets of any situation, and this would include both good and bad, not just bad. Life always consists of problems, but also moments of goodness too. So I think the fundamental basis for developing this realistic outlook or attitude is to see things from a wider perspective. If you analyze, investigate, you will find that there are many ways of looking at a problem. For example, instead of looking only at one's immediate circumstances, sometimes 
it can be helpful to take a long-term view. So, generally speaking, here we're talking about a more balanced view, a more complete view. This is a more realistic view. It involves developing a flexible kind of thinking that is able to see a situation from many angles. I think in the past, we've discussed how the destructive emotions tend to distort reality and narrow our perspective. So, in overcoming negative emotions, we need to counter that by adopting a broader and more holistic perspective. Your Holiness, you are saying that there are different ways of seeing things realistically, from a wider perspective, and that this can overcome negative emotions and help us cope with life's problems. That's right. So, can you describe one of these ways and explain how it would help us cope? The Dalai Lama was silent for several moments, then said, I think one can begin with one's very attitude about problems and suffering in general. I think that if we have a realistic attitude and understand that problems are naturally bound to arise in one form or another, it's a simple fact of life. We will be more effective in coping with the problems when they arise. How will this help us cope with problems more effectively rather than depress us? I asked. For example, with this attitude, we won't be so surprised when problems come up. We will be better able to face our problems directly, with less fear, less tendency to avoid or pretend they are not there. We will be able to put our energy into trying to come up with a solution, rather than expending energy by always feeling it is unfair, getting angry and upset that we have this experience, or looking for some single individual or institution to place the blame and then directing all our anger towards that source of all our problems. Of course, having the proper attitude about suffering is only one thing. We also need to find other ways to see things from a wider perspective, investigate different approaches of perceiving our problems from different angles, discover an outlook that can help us cope when troubles arise, but an outlook that is based in reality. One morning, two men were driving to a very important business meeting, and they were running really late. On the way to the meeting, they got a flat tire. Needless to say, the passenger got really upset about this, but he noticed that the driver remained completely calm and undisturbed by the situation, and immediately just set about changing the tire. As they were changing the tire, the passenger became more and more agitated each minute, but the driver just kept working still totally unflustered. So finally, the passenger couldn't help but ask, We're going to be so late. How can you be so calm about this? And almost cheerfully, the driver answered, This is number three. Unsatisfied, of course, the passenger asked him to explain, and he said, Many years ago, when I first started to drive, I read a statistic giving the average number of flat tires that motorists will have during their driving years. So right then... I just decided to expect my fair share of flat tires, which, by the way, still has not reached the average. And at the same time, I realized that no matter when or where I got my blowouts, I could be sure that when it happened, it would never be convenient. I figured that was just part of the normal costs of having the convenience of driving, like paying for gas or oil. So, this is just one of my fair share of flats. That's all. Long ago... Someone told me this story, 
and while the precise origin of the story is gradually faded from my memory, the story is stuck with me, surfacing in my mind from time to time when I begin to feel that daily events are conspiring against me. This story illustrates the principles discussed by the Dalai Lama that morning, showing how accepting problems as a natural fact of human existence can help reduce unnecessary agitation and negative emotion. It also illustrates the more general principle, showing how a realistic outlook based on looking at the problem from a wider perspective can help us cope. Step by step, the Dalai Lama continued to reveal a powerful approach to finding happiness in our troubled world, an approach to coping with the problems of daily life without being overcome with hopelessness, discouragement, or fear. Having mentioned how, from the Buddhist perspective, positive emotions could act as specific antidotes to negative states of mind, he now went on to identify an all-purpose remedy, a general antidote that can completely eradicate all negative emotions by overcoming their root cause, our fundamental ignorance. Ignorance, in this context, does not mean merely a lack of information or knowledge. Here, the term refers to a fundamental lack of awareness of the underlying true nature of reality, which is known as emptiness. It implies a more active kind of misperception or misapprehension of reality, a gap between how things appear and how they truly exist. According to Buddhist theory, the direct perception of the ultimate nature of reality, the realization of emptiness, purifies the mind from all negative tendencies and results in a state of enlightenment in which one is freed from all suffering and liberated from samsara, the endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. This is a tall order. According to Buddhist scriptures, it can take countless eons of lifetimes to achieve such a state. So the obvious question is, how is this relevant to those of us who are not Buddhist practitioners, or those who do not want to wait countless eons of lifetimes for happiness? How does this apply to those of us struggling to cope with our troubled world and find a measure of happiness and peace? According to Buddhist philosophy, there are two levels of reality, ultimate reality and conventional reality. The ultimate nature of reality, as we have mentioned, refers to the concept of emptiness, and the direct perception of emptiness comes about as a result of spiritual realizations. Conventional reality refers to day-to-day -day life, our common-sense reality, accepting the reality of everything that appears to be real. In the same way, we can refer to two levels of happiness. In one of our conversations years ago, the Dalai Lama once referred to enlightenment or liberation as the highest happiness. That is the ultimate happiness. The goal of the Art of Happiness series is much more modest, but still not always easy. The achievement of greater day-to-day -day happiness and life satisfaction. This is conventional happiness. With this last piece, we can return to the ideas expressed by the Dalai Lama in our discussion and begin to fit everything into place. As we have seen, the Dalai Lama's approach to finding happiness in our troubled world is a realistic approach, developing a realistic outlook, which involves investigating and increasing awareness 
about the reality of the situations around us. Here, he is referring to conventional reality. It is a kind of all-purpose method of dealing with everyday problems, coping with adversity, cultivating positive emotions, and overcoming the negative emotions that are the cause of so much of our suffering in life. Thus, we can see direct parallels on the two levels of reality. Awareness of the ultimate nature of reality emptiness leads to ultimate happiness, and greater awareness of the conventional reality of everyday life leads to conventional happiness. Both can be seen as general antidotes to negative emotions and states of mind, with the ultimate antidote completely eradicating all negative states of mind, and the conventional antidote, which is what we are exploring here, eliminating or reducing negative emotions and states of mind enough to enjoy a happy life. Finally, in drawing parallels between the Dalai Lama's method of overcoming negative emotions and achieving happiness, and the latest scientific studies on happiness, we can add one more recent scientific theory about positive emotions. Earlier, we saw how Fredrickson's undoing hypothesis provided evidence for the concept of positive emotions acting as antidotes to the negative emotions. This can parallel the Buddhist concept of specific antidotes, how each negative emotion has a specific positive emotion that can act as an antidote. As it turns out, Barbara Fredrickson and colleagues have also developed another highly influential theory that can act as a parallel to the Buddhist concept of a general antidote to all destructive emotions. Her theory, the broaden and build model of positive emotions, also helps explain why the Dalai Lama's method is so powerful and effective. Up until the last decade, the vast majority of scientific research on human emotion focused on negative emotions. As a result, neuroscientists and evolutionary psychologists developed coherent theories about why negative emotions evolved, explaining how they helped our remote ancestors survive. From an evolutionary perspective, the negative emotions made good sense. But when looking for the reason why we have positive emotions, seeking to identify how they were adaptive from an evolutionary perspective, how they helped us survive, things didn't make a lot of sense. Unlike the negative emotions, which were each associated with specific thought-action tendencies that urged us to act in ways that would help us survive, the positive emotions didn't seem to be urging us to do anything in particular. They only maybe told us, Hey, this is good. Just keep doing what you're doing and don't change anything. It was easy to see how physical pleasure, linked with enjoyment of food or sex, played a role in survival and reproduction, but the adaptive value of the many other positive emotions was largely a mystery. The build part of the broaden and build theory proposes that the negative emotions were designed to help us survive when we were in danger, while the positive emotions were designed for those times when things were safe, and their purpose was to build physical, intellectual, and social resources that we could use in the future which would enhance our odds for survival. These are the emotions associated with invention and discovery, of thinking of new strategies to gain resources and ways to adapt to our environment. And these are the emotions that help foster social bonds that pay off in the future, 
when things may be difficult, and we need to turn to others to help us. As human beings evolved and lived longer, it certainly paid to think about the future and build up a few resources that we could cash in on at a later time. In one of the original experiments demonstrating the broadening effect of positive emotions, Fredrickson and her colleagues gathered a group of test subjects, divided them into groups, and evoked a different emotion in each group by having them watch short film clips that elicited a particular emotion, such as amusement, anger, or fear. She then assessed the effect of the emotion on the participant's ability to think broadly or narrowly, to see either the big picture or to focus in on small details. She did this in various ways. In one experiment, for example, she used a global local visual processing task. She showed them a diagram of some geometric shapes, the standard figure. Then she showed them two other diagrams and asked them to judge which of the two comparison figures is most like the standard one. Neither choice was right or wrong. One comparison figure resembled the standard in its overall shape, or global configuration, and the other one resembled the first more in its fine details, or local elements. The results showed that those who were feeling positive emotion were much more likely to see the big picture and choose the figure that resembled the overall shape. Those who were feeling neutral or in a negative mood were more likely to show a narrower thought pattern focusing on the small details. Since that original experiment, Fredrickson and others have conducted many similar kinds of experiments, conclusively showing some of these fundamental differences in thinking between those in a positive mood and those in a negative mood. Another investigator, Alice Eisen from Cornell University, one of the true pioneers in research on positive emotions, has investigated the effects of positive emotions on thinking for more than two decades, accumulating extensive evidence demonstrating their broadening effects. In one study, for example, she induced a positive feeling in a group of subjects and had them perform some word association exercises. She would give them a list of three words, for instance, mower, foreign, and atomic, then ask them to think of a word that relates to all three. Answer, power. She found that the subjects who were feeling happy did significantly better than the control group. Her original research using this method was designed to study the effects of positive emotions on creativity. But in conducting experiments such as these, it also became clear that positive emotions help people see things from a wider perspective, as opposed to the narrowing effects of negative emotions. With this as a background, if we now take another look at the Dalai Lama's realistic approach, suddenly we find that his words begin to take on a familiar ring. The primary technique or method he recommends for cultivating this realistic outlook is looking at adverse situations from a wider perspective, from different angles, looking at the big picture, adopting a long-term perspective, cultivating a flexible way of thinking, that allows us to see things in new ways, and so on. This is precisely the type of thinking that investigators have associated with the positive emotions through recent experiments. Here, a critical question comes up. The research shows how our positive emotions or feelings of happiness generally act to broaden our perspective and outlook. 
the Dalai Lama suggests the opposite, that cultivating a broader outlook, a wider and more realistic perspective, using one's capacity for reason, analysis, logic, etc., is an effective approach to coping with our troubled world and maintaining happiness. So positive emotions may lead to this type of outlook that the Dalai Lama is talking about. But is the opposite true? In other words, does deliberately cultivating a broader outlook, seeing one's problems from different angles and so on, lead to more positive emotions? In a word, yes. Studies done by Fredrickson and others have shown that it is a two-way street. Positive emotions lead to broader thinking, and the practice of broader thinking leads to positive emotions. The result is what investigators have identified as an upward spiral, where the more one practices broader thinking, the more positive emotions and happiness one will experience, which will in turn lead to a broader outlook, and so on. There seems to be no doubt that looking at situations from a broader perspective can help us cultivate more positive emotions and can help us cope with daily problems more effectively. Of course, there are certain positive emotions or states of mind that are of particular value and importance when dealing with some of the more serious and intractable problems in the world today. Hope, optimism, and resilience. Thus, the following morning, we turn to these critical topics. Chapter 11 Hope, Optimism, and Resilience Hope Spring is the season of hope, and every spring, as Chicago Cubs fans fill Wrigley Field for the baseball team's opening game of the season, there is the same sincere conviction in every heart. This is the year. This year, they will win the World Series. And every autumn, when the chill returns to the air and the days begin to grow shorter, with their dreams of a pennant shattered, there is one thought in every heart. Wait till next year. And what is it that inspires the fans to crowd into the stadium the following year, once again crying, This is the year, even though their team has not won a World Series since 1908? It is hope. Hope is one of humanity's most valuable inner resources, and it was hope to which we now turned our attention. Your Holiness, I began. You know, yesterday you had mentioned the benefits of accepting the fact that problems and suffering are bound to arise in life. I was just thinking, however, that despite the potential benefits of adopting this starkly realistic outlook you were speaking about, in view of all the problems going on in the world, things can sure seem discouraging sometimes. That's why we need a variety of approaches, the Dalai Lama replied, and different ways of looking at our problems. For example, even if we are thinking about some of the larger or more serious problems in society, issues like the environment and so on, and feeling a sense of distress or helplessness, if one looks at this from a wider perspective, you can see that many of these problems are caused by our human intelligence, misuse of human intelligence, without being counterbalanced with human values, a good heart. For example, our intelligence has led to developing these modern technologies, but without a sense of human responsibility, technology can cause disasters. 
But if certain problems are caused or created by our human intelligence, then the same intelligence can be used to find the solution, if the will is there, guided by the proper motivation. Well, even if it is possible to find solutions, I think many people might still become discouraged because the problems are so complex and progress in overcoming them seems to occur so slowly. That's why I think it is so important to cultivate an attitude that allows you to maintain hope. Hope can make a great difference in how one responds to problems and difficulties. So, since hope is so critical in today's world, I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit more about it and how to cultivate it. Yes. Now, about hope. I think from one perspective, one could say that our very existence is sustained by hope. You see, as we have discussed many times, the most fundamental aspiration of all human beings is to seek happiness, to overcome suffering. We may go to bed at night confronted with many problems in our lives, but we go to bed hoping we will wake up the next morning. He chuckled, then continued. And then the next morning, in a way, it is hope that motivates us to get out of bed and carry on with our lives. The hope that we will eventually be able to achieve our aspiration for happiness. The hope that somehow we will be able to overcome the obstacles. And we may have other more specific kinds of goals in our lives. And it's hope that allows us to continue working toward those goals. So our lives are very much kept alive by hope. With this in mind, I asked, Can you tell me how you yourself have sustained an underlying feeling of hope in the face of the challenges of the Tibetan situation that remain essentially unresolved right up until the present day? Yes. Here we have been discussing this approach of adopting a wider perspective, and that can be tremendously helpful in maintaining a feeling of hope in dealing with the Tibetan situation. Because the more narrow one's view, the more hopeless it might look. If you look at it only in a limited context, looking only at the recent events and the current situation, we have struggled for fifty years, but so far our efforts have not brought success. But if you broaden your perspective and look at the situation from a global perspective, then you might see some basis for hope. After all, the entire world is changing, and there is no reason why China should be an exception. Just a couple decades ago, who would have predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union? In fact, today's China is very different from the China twenty years ago. In the case of Tibet, if you look only at the past Chinese policies, you might not see the potential for much hope. But with a wider perspective, you might discover there are changes taking place within the Chinese society itself, especially among the common people who are beginning to show more interest in Tibetan culture and Buddhism. Even among the Chinese people, you can see a growing number of supporters and those who show greater sympathy for the Tibetans. So here again, you can see that the wider one's perspective, the greater the possibility for hope. Even with respect to the large-scale transfer of ethnic Chinese population into Tibet, which raises serious fears among the Tibetans that this might reduce the Tibetans to an insignificant minority in our own country. One could even envision a potential for a change in policy. 
One could imagine that without governmental incentives for the Han Chinese to move to Tibet, the population transfer not only might stop, but in fact, some of the current Chinese residents of Tibet might choose to return to their original home, where the altitude and the climate might be more suitable. So anything is possible. Thinking about the inner strength and enormous sense of purpose that would be required to maintain hope after decades of failure in dealing with the Chinese, I asked, "Were there any other factors that have helped you maintain hope in addition to adopting this wider perspective?" This approach has been useful in helping maintain hope," he replied. "But in my case, there can be many factors at play. For one thing, I find refuge in my Buddhist practices." For example, there is one passage that I repeat every day, which sustains me, provides a great source of strength, and prevents me from losing hope. You mean your favorite passage from Shanti Deva? Yes, he said. Then, reciting the passage with a tone of freshness, as if reciting it for the first time, he said, "As long as space remains, as long as sentient beings remain." Until then, may I too remain, and dispel the miseries of the world. So here, this stanza helps me shift my perspective, creating a much more expansive vision, looking at the situation in a wider context. So, if you perceive the situation against the backdrop of the expanse of time, along with the recognition that change is inevitable. That impermanence is one of the inevitable characteristics of existence. Then one can see that anything is possible. Of course, this is primarily a Buddhist approach. He reminded me. You need to keep in mind that one of the reasons why stanzas such as this one from Shanti Deva are so powerful for me is that when I recite them, there is a whole system of beliefs behind it. This includes a belief in the theory of rebirth. The idea of innumerable eons, and so on. I think that in general, whether one is a religious believer or not, can make a big difference in one's ability to cope. And here, I think each of the world's major religious traditions have made a contribution, each with its own ideas or practices that help give believers a kind of inner strength, and prevent them from sinking into hopelessness or despair. When confronting the problems of the world, of course, he added, from a secular perspective, one may find these ideas difficult to accept. Actually, Your Holiness, there's a lot of scientific evidence to back you up, showing the benefits of faith in increasing one's overall happiness, and in helping one cope with life's adversities or traumatic events. And this is a topic that I'd like to explore with you in greater depth at some point later on, but for right now, I'd like to stick to more secular strategies. So I'm wondering, you mentioned how reciting Shanti Deva's stanza helps give you a more expansive or long-term perspective, but there's a system of Buddhist beliefs behind that. But I think that even from a secular perspective, without that system of beliefs. A person can still appreciate the value of a wider, long-term perspective. I pondered for a moment. So I'm wondering if there are additional ways to develop that more expansive vision, but without resorting to thinking about innumerable eons and rebirth and so on. 
Here I'm trying to think of a specific example related to the topic of sustaining hope. Suddenly, a thought occurred to me. Oh, this might be an example. Let's say that a person is working on a difficult task, something that seems almost impossible, hopeless. Like, for instance, let's say that a researcher is working on a cure for a disease, but of course it is so complex it might seem almost hopeless. Instead of being overwhelmed by the unlikelihood of that person discovering a cure, let's say that he or she may deliberately spend time thinking along the lines of, yes, this task is very difficult, I may not accomplish it myself, but if I make just one small contribution, one small step, then another researcher can build on that, and someone else can then build on their work, and so on. If the person looks at it from that perspective, then it will not seem so hopeless. He or she will have hope that eventually the cure will be found. Could that line of reasoning act as a substitute, replacing the idea of rebirth and innumerable eons? That's right. That's right. Very good, the Dalai Lama cried. That's a very good example. Because in fact, if you look at the history of modern science and where we currently are, you can see the effects of the contribution made by individuals from different directions and generations. So one person made a contribution, and another person came later and built up on this. Another person came and built up on that. So you can look at just the last century and see where science has evolved to a stage where the pioneers of modern science would have never even dreamed of. So, Howard, I think that this is, in fact, a kind of complementary idea, and the kind of reasoning you suggest can be helpful in developing a more long-term perspective that might be useful in sustaining hope, especially when addressing various problems in society or achieving any difficult long-term objective. Can you think of any other factors or strategies to help sustain hope, other ways to look at a problem that will give one strength to keep going without falling into discouragement or hopelessness? So, other factors, he repeated softly. You know, Howard, in maintaining hope and determination in pursuit of a noble objective, generally I feel that it is crucial to have a clear recognition of how worthy your objective is, the value of the objective. That's the important thing. Recognizing that your objective is worthy, for example, one that involves others' welfare or the general well-being of the community, helps give you the determination to pursue it. And then when things become difficult, simply reminding yourself of the value of your objective can help sustain hope and courage. You may be really struggling with a difficult problem, for example, but if you can remind yourself that future generations of your family or friends will reap the benefits if you are successful, then this will help you sustain your efforts and not give up. In that case, then whether or not that objective can be realized in your lifetime is not really important. For example, if you look at the lives of such great spiritual masters as the Buddha and Jesus Christ, the missions that they set out to accomplish were not confined to their own lifetime. This idea of having a worthy objective, I asked, do you think this is related to having a sense of meaning and a higher purpose in life? Yes, this may be related, the Dalai Lama replied. 
although what I mean here specifically is the need to appreciate the value of the objectives you wish to pursue. It is also the case that when an individual has a sense of purpose in his existence that transcends the narrow personal concerns, this provides one a source of strength and the ability to withstand adversities and hardships. So, if a person's goal or objective is linked to their sense of meaning or higher purpose, then this can make a big difference in strengthening their determination. To most observers looking at the current situation in Tibet, the Dalai Lama's dream of genuine autonomy and freedom for his people, even without full independence, seems hopeless. It seems inconceivable that the Chinese leadership would suddenly do a complete about-face and stem the tide of the Han Chinese pouring into Tibet abandoning their apparent plan of diluting the Tibetan population to such a proportion that they become a small minority in their own country. Despite this, for the past fifty years, the Dalai Lama has struggled ceaselessly, working tirelessly to achieve greater freedom and human rights for the people of Tibet, doing his best to educate others, making appeals whenever or wherever he can. And for fifty years, he is met with nothing but failure. At every step, no matter what he does or whom he meets with, as soon as his presence becomes known anywhere in the world, formal protests and informal complaints are bound to be lodged by the Chinese government, exerting whatever pressure they can to bully and intimidate whoever meets with him. This has happened again and again, with ruthless and maddening monotony for fifty years, but he has not lost hope. Clearly, the Dalai Lama has mastered the art of hope, and in our discussion that morning, he explained how he has managed to do this. Using the Tibetan situation as an illustration, he revealed how his realistic approach could be used to cultivate hope. The general strategy or main technique that we were discussing that week involved looking at a situation from a broader perspective or from different angles. As we mentioned, this strategy has a broad range of applications in cultivating positive emotions, like hope, as well as reducing negative emotions and in helping us cope with life's difficulties in general. In the scientific literature, this strategy is sometimes called reframing or reappraisal. In showing how he applies this method to the Tibetan situation, the Dalai Lama began by looking at the situation more broadly along two dimensions, time and space. Looking from a broader time frame, he took a more long-term view of the situation, and looking more broadly from the space dimension, he viewed the situation not just from the standpoint of the local conditions and circumstances, but rather he expanded his perspective to view the situation from a wider global context, looking at the changes throughout the world. As our conversations unfolded that week, the Dalai Lama went on to reveal additional ways of looking at problems more realistically or from a wider perspective. And in this discussion, he added one of the most important ways of reappraising or reframing an adverse situation or problem finding some greater meaning or higher purpose associated with the situation. As the Dalai Lama suggests, the more one's goal is 
linked to their sense of meaning or higher purpose, the easier it will be to draw strength from one's goal and increase one's determination to overcome any obstacle in life. Earlier, we mentioned how positive emotions can help us cope with adversity, acting as an antidote to the stress response associated with emotions such as anxiety or anger. Summarizing the scientific evidence on this subject, Barbara Fredrickson has said, Positive emotions are linked to more effective coping, marked by finding positive meaning within problems and taking broad perspectives on those problems. Looking at the data from others' work as well as her own experiments, she has concluded, Finding positive meaning may be the most powerful leverage point for cultivating positive emotions during times of crisis. Traditionally, the most common way of finding meaning is through one's spiritual or religious beliefs. In our discussion, the Dalai Lama was completely open in identifying how his Buddhist beliefs and practices have played a powerful role in helping him cope with adversity. Finding some positive meaning in adversity not only enhances positive emotions in general, but also can strengthen the specific positive emotions we are addressing here. Hope. In fact, the positive meaning one derives from religious faith is probably the greatest single source of hope throughout history, from which countless people have drawn strength, inspiration, and courage. There is no question that having purpose and meaning is one of the surest sources of human happiness in general, in addition to its role in helping us maintain hope, sustaining a person through adversity, suffering tragedy, and the darkest periods of life. As we have seen, religious faith can certainly provide a sense of meaning, but purpose and meaning can also be found in many ways besides religious faith. The Dalai Lama advises that when one is facing adversity or obstacles in the pursuit of one's goals, one way of increasing hope and strength to carry on is to remind oneself of the value or greater benefit of your objective reflecting on its worthiness, such as how it may contribute to the welfare or well-being of others. This is essentially a method of finding positive meaning, and an effective strategy to help strengthen hope that can be used by religious and non-religious people alike. Referring to studies conducted by herself and others, Fredrickson has said, With or without the infusion of religion, people can find positive meaning in daily life by reframing adverse events in a positive light, infusing ordinary events with positive value, and pursuing and attaining realistic goals. As our conversation continued, the Dalai Lama's practical advice correlated perfectly with modern scientific theory in discussing the importance of setting realistic goals. Setting Realistic Goals Your Holiness, I continued. I think you have come up with some good practical advice about how to cope with problems without becoming completely overwhelmed. I'm just wondering if you can think of any other factors that could be helpful as we pursue our goals in life. Factors that could help prevent us from becoming too discouraged as we come up against obstacles. Yes. Another thing. We've been speaking about the usefulness of having a realistic outlook and I think that as you set about to achieve some goal, 
it is important to investigate how realistic and feasible it is, to see if your goal is possible to achieve or not. How well prepared you are right at the very start can make a difference. As Shantideva points out in his Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, before you embark on a venture, first examine it properly to see whether or not you can do it. You shouldn't plunge into it hastily. I think that just the clear awareness that your objective is really possible to achieve can help strengthen your hope and determination. Becoming distracted by my tape recorder for a moment, I lost track and got off track. Your Holiness, I'm getting confused about one point. You mentioned that one factor to help sustain hope is this kind of single-pointed determination to pursue your objective, based on your recognition of how valuable or worthy it is, regardless of whether it can be achieved in this lifetime. Now you are speaking of the need to set a realistic goal, making sure that the goal is practical, that you can actually achieve it. So in a way, it seems that... Not waiting for me to complete the thought, he replied, Howard, here we're generally talking about two different things, the global level and the individual level. So in the case of the global level, tackling wider societal problems and so on, even if our objectives don't get achieved in one individual's lifetime or one generation, it's still worth pursuing. But in the case of an individual's personal needs, then one's goals should be practical and achievable. So there's no conflict. It's two different contexts. Having clarified the point, he went on. Of course, developing a realistic outlook does not just involve determining whether your objective is possible or not possible. It also involves a kind of active assessment of the possible challenges that might arise in the pursuit of that goal. If right at the start there is a clear understanding that some objectives may be harder to realize and some can be realized more easily, if people are already aware of that distinction and accept it, and if you discover that your particular objective may be harder to realize, then you'll expect that there are bound to be some problems in the pursuit of that. And if people are already aware of this fact, then when they encounter adversity, they are much better prepared. There is then less risk of losing hope. Whereas if from the beginning you totally ignore the fact that obstacles will arise, then when you encounter even a tiny impediment, you lose hope and you react in an exaggerated way. The Dalai Lama views hope as an essential factor in helping us sustain our efforts when we encounter obstacles and setbacks in life, helping us persist in finding solutions to life's challenges, a view supported by many scientific studies. Because of its tremendous value, hope has been a subject of intense interest to psychologists involved in the positive psychology movement. When investigating hope, most researchers classify it as one of the positive emotions, although there is not universal agreement. Some may see hope as more of a thinking process or a kind of character trait. But no matter how one classifies hope, there is no question that it can be a key ingredient in coping with a troubled world. In addition, as a positive emotion, like other positive emotions in general, hope can make a direct contribution to the sum total of one's happiness. And as if this was not enough, 
Studies have found hope to be associated with a wide array of benefits for one's physical and mental health. Hope has been associated with better academic and sports achievement among students. And adults high in hope have stronger relationships, greater success at work, and increased likelihood of attaining their goals in general. In view of all the benefits that hope brings, it isn't surprising that over the past decade or two there have been many new theories about the nature of hope and how to increase it. Some of these theories have garnered a bit of attention. Most have been discarded. But one psychologist in particular, Charles Richard Snyder, at the University of Kansas, was very influential in this field, making a major contribution to our understanding of hope. Before Snyder's theory, it was felt that hope was a kind of undifferentiated wish or sense that the person can achieve their goals. Snyder thought of hope as a goal-directed thinking process, consisting of two components working together. Pathways thinking and agency thinking. Pathways thinking involves having a game plan on how to achieve your goals. Agency thinking involves the will or motivation to carry it out. Snyder believes that both of these types of thinking must be present in order to maintain hope and that they reinforce each other.